Covenants. Last 31. Okay. Um, so, no class on Wednesday. Uh, no class on Thursday either, folks. You guys are welcome to come, but I will not be here. I can't hang around after class today. I have to go rush home, get in the car, the kids, drive to North Carolina. Oh, don't forget the dog, too. So that's great. Um, family reunion. In-laws. The in-laws who drink like fish. I've been training my liver for months for the next five days. I promise I will not grade any of the uh, problem sets. I may write the exam, though. Maybe that's be better. Yeah, that might help, too. Man with confidence. I like that. All right. In all seriousness, get a little time off over the break. Take a day or so. Relax. Keep a sense of perspective. Or take two hours, whatever. You know. All right. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to do a sort of an overview of covenants, um, and then the real sort of action here uh, uh, with respect to covenants is, is touch of concern, a little bit less, but more, uh, but also on notice. And we're also going to talk about uh, how you can terminate covenants uh, under particular kinds of circumstances. Right? So the first thing to get out there is that easements and covenants are really pretty much the same type of thing. Right? Um, they're, they're basically very, very closely related um, aspects of property law. Uh, the difference is, I mean, one way to think about it is that easements uh, are much more um, uh, sort of property-like in the sense that they deal directly with the uses or non-uses of the property itself. Right? So they, they feel, in a sense, more property-like. Covenants are agreements, um, and in that sense, they can be much for a much broader array of subject matter uh, and so forth. So, um, yeah, so that's one particular difference. Easements always run with the land. Right? Easements are part of the, the property right that you have. Um, and so, therefore, they run with the land. The, the covenants may or may not run with the land, and we'll talk about, uh, about that. I mean, the easy case in covenants is, is just, uh, well, so let me say a couple more things. One is, another important thing to understand about covenants that make them a little bit different than easements is that there aren't, we don't usually think there are rights and duties with respect to third parties of covenants, right? It's usually just between you and whoever is the beneficiary of the covenant. Easements, you'll recall, sometimes will give exclusive rights uh, and, and allow some enforceability uh, uh, when you have the easement um, over third parties. Uh, and so that's a, another difference here. Um, and you also need covenants you must have uh, in writing. Okay? And there's no implication, necessity, prescriptive. Um, there's got to be at some point. Now, again, we'll see that they might be... Um, uh, uh, found even if it's not in your deed, but in general there has to be a writing to create them at some point uh, on the road. Okay? Um, so the easy case here is A and B are neighbors. A and B agree, right? They basically sign a contract to do something like maintain the fence that runs uh, along their property line, right? That's an easy case. That seems to be a covenant between the two parties. It's going to be enforceable. 
probably both against A and B, that's easy, right? It's clear. They signed an agreement. Uh, so that's enforceable. The tricky part, of course, uh, is does it run, right? Does that covenant uh, between A and B to maintain the fence run with successors and interest to A and B? Um, and, and, so, and if so, what does that mean? And relatedly, when does it end, if ever? Right? Those are the tricky parts of covenants. The, the content of them is relatively uh, straightforward and easy to figure out. Okay? All right, so the first case we have is, is Tolk versus Moxe. Tolk versus Moxe. So, Ed, you're up. All right. Uh, all right, so. Leicester Square. How many people have been to Leicester Square? It's in downtown London. Yep, all right, go ahead. Uh, so the plaintiff was the owner of the area. I guess it's a B simple that he's And uh, there was a vacant area that was a square. And then he sold to part of that property to someone else who was before the defendant and then I guess passed down to the defendant after numerous transactions. Good. Um, so the defendant. Uh, Sorry, so in the, uh, in the deed to convey the land, there was some covenant uh, about not, uh, I think there was a couple things in the covenant, to keep and maintain the property, uh, to allow access to the public, and uh, I think not to develop, or not to build anything on the property. Good. Um, and the one at issue here? Which one? Which one are we we debating here? Which one is the is subject of this case? Um, the, the defendant wanted to convert or use a piece of ground and, and square garden. So, I guess he wants to develop it. That... Exactly. Right. So he wants to build on the garden. Right. So, so one of these servitudes, uh, the, the middle one there is the one that's sort of at issue in this case. Didn't seem like there were any uh, arguments about the others, at least not at this point. Okay, so, so the issue here then is, so does, does uh, Moxe understand that he's got this, this covenant? So the covenant disappeared somewhere along the chain okay. uh, in the deeds. It was there in the original deed, uh, the covenant writing, but somewhere along the way it Moxie is trying to say that the covenant is not enforceable, but I think it said that the case said that he knew of the covenant. Good. Um, and uh, and so that was one thing that factored into uh, into the decision. Good. All right. So the the issue here is whether or not this covenant is going to run. Right? Does it run with the land? If it does run with the land, what does that mean for Moxie? Zach can't build, can't develop uh, the, the portion of the, the garden that he wants. Um, if it doesn't run with the land, it looks like he's got a fee simple and he can do what he wants with it, right? So that's, that's sort of the, the outcome of the case here. So the, the court begins by saying, we understand the English common law does not like uh, running covenants at all. And in fact, would only allow them in landlord-tenant type situations. Why? Uh... Okay. Um, All right. So perhaps concerns about notice. What notice to the Moxes of the world? Notice to the Mo 
to not only the Moxes and future landowners, but I guess also to other, well, I guess it's not relevant to other parties we've been talking about, uh, but really to the Moxes. Okay. Uh, I think also the case mentioned something about the price uh, would be affected by the covenant, by enforcing or not enforcing the covenant. Um, so one party could buy the land, strip out the covenant, and sell for a higher price the next day. Sure, but wouldn't that be, I mean, it, but that's what the English common law would presumably allow, at least prior to this case, right? So, any other ideas of why, why the English common law? So, one clearly is notice, right? We, we definitely are concerned here about notice concerns because, you know, you can see in this case that these covenants, although they might show up quite clearly in some uh, original transaction, they tend to have a, a practice of disappearing uh, over time, at least in the cases that end up in the casebook, uh, and so thereby creating potential notice problems. Any other reasons you might want to avoid, as a general matter, allowing covenants to run? And why are courts worried about this? I mean, notice is a clear issue. Exactly, right? And they're encumbering property, right? Adding more stuff will limit limitations, restrictions on your ability to do things with your property or more affirmative requirements to do things when you own the property. They add reasons, transaction costs, reasons that people might not want to purchase the property. They diminish the value uh, of the property potentially. They potentially impede uh, full transferability. And therefore, if we want a property system to be designed in a way that maximizes transferability and transparency, we probably want to have as few of these sorts of encumbrances as, as we can get. Right? Um, okay. So, Ed, how would this case turn out in the U.S.? Uh, well, the U.S. doesn't typically employ injunctions. Um, oh, we do. I mean, sure, sometimes we do. Yeah, but I guess I think some Margaret said that uh, the U.S. tends to use the real covenant approach as opposed to the servitude. It does, but those, I mean, an important feature here is to just understand that those two are just the same exact thing. Um, uh, for, for our purposes in this course, except for the type of remedy you want, right? If you want an injunctive relief, you say you're calling it an equitable servitude. If you want a, a, a relief in damages, you say you're calling it a real covenant. But what's the big thing with respect to the main issue here that the U.S. is different than the English common law? No, not necessarily. What is it? The U.S. has generally not been hostile to running covenants. We just haven't as much in the U.S. Not entirely clear why. We just have not ever had a tradition um, uh, of being quite as hostile to running covenants. Um, and so, it, you know, the, you can see in this case how the English uh, court had to sort of really overcome uh, what it viewed as pretty strong law saying you can't run uh, covenants with the land. How did it overcome that, by the way? How did it overcome... The, the very strong English law that's uh, uh, legal standard saying covenants may not run with the land except in a landlord-tenant situation, which this is clearly not. Uh, How does the court dance around that? I think there was, I think there was part of the previous state. I think that came up. No, not there. What's he say? How does, it, how does the court do this? He acknowledges. We don't allow covenants to run with the land. Oh, you're just talking about this specific case. 
This is talk. Yeah, we're still on talk. Oh, okay. Uh, well, they talk about uh, that no one purchasing with notice of that equity can stand in a different situation from the party from whom he purchased. Right. So, uh, I guess that assumes that Moxay knew, and therefore he must stand in the, uh, the previous owner's uh, situation. Right, but that in some sense is the punchline. What is the court doing here to avoid the law of England which says covenants may not run with the land? I mean, yes, they say things like it would not be fair otherwise, but what are they doing? They make a subtle distinction between not trying to run the land, but if a later buyer can break the covenant. Okay, where do you see that? Point to language. Um... The question is not whether the covenant runs the land, but whether a party should be permitted to use the land in a manner inconsistent with the contract entered into by its vendor. Right. Is that circular? Yeah. Yeah. So what is it, what is the court doing? How does the court get around the, the law that says covenants can't run? I mean, because the answer to that is, well, covenants can't run, so of course you can violate the, the prior trend, the prior agreement between the grantors. Good. Okay, in some sense they are, and covenants are a contract, so that, that doesn't get them all the way, right? But Ed has already said that they really emphasize the notice a few times here. How does the court do that? I mean, just legally. Does the court just violate the law? The court says it's not. And look at 1015, the paragraph, the, I guess, third from final paragraph in the case that the question does not depend on whether the covenant runs with the land is evident from this. What does the court mean? What is it doing? How many people are confused? Okay. What is it? Somebody's got to be not confused. I don't know. It seems like he's saying that... Don't start with I don't know. <laughs> Raise your hand if you know. It seems like he's saying that they agreed to this. Moxay did not agree to it. Clearly not. He's, he's generations removed from this original, I mean, not tons of generations, but a long time removed from this. So he was not a party, clearly not a party to the original agreement. So that can't be it. Okay, so why? The court definitely highlights that. Why? Good. Good. All right. So, what does that suggest about how the court is getting around the law? They're saying it's the principles of equity. There you go. Exactly. They're saying this is not a legal question. This is all about equity. Remember, particularly in the in the English common law, we have this very strong distinction about rules of equity and rules of law. And the court here is saying this is not about a real covenant question. Instead, this is an equity issue. And when you get into the zone of equity, what kinds of things matter? Well, one thing is fairness, right? So this idea that he, per he since he had noticed he purchased this clearly with the understanding and therefore it seemed like it must have been factored into the price, right? Notice is really important in an equity context, again, because of the basic fairness. And so they're just basically sort of doing an end run around this long-standing English common law restriction on running covenants to say, 
okay, covenants don't run, but equitable servitudes can under particular circumstances, and, and, this, is, and this is one of those circumstances, right? Um, so that's, that's sort of the legal uh, sidestep the court does, right? Um, all right, so the, the U.S. allows real covenants to run with the land in some circumstances. So, Ed, why, why not simply do the same thing that the English have done and say, uh, covenants do not run equitable servitude to you. Uh, one reason is that is, uh, injunctions are generally harsher than damages. Okay. Um, so courts want to what? Why would they want to allow both kinds to run? I think you're right. Injunctions are harsher. Both kinds being yeah. Covenants. U.S. allows real covenants to run and equitable servitudes to run. They run. They can both run if the circumstances are right. But it's not like England where they have, we have this distinction. Covenants don't run. Equitable servitudes can run. Why? Why would courts want to allow both kinds? What's the difference? Um, you said it already, which is the difference is between the two? It's the remedy, right? Okay, so why would the court want to allow both kinds to run? So that a party can seek one or the other. Yeah, it's flexibility, right? We want to allow more flexibility. Injunctive relief is, is a tough... Uh, uh, a, a, a tough remedy may not be appropriate in all circumstances. We want to allow parties to seek remedies both in damages and uh, in, in terms of injunctive relief as well. Um, and so you can allow people to sue and, and obtain a, a relief of damages as opposed to some sort of injunction as well. And it gives the courts um, more flexibility and latitude to do with it. Okay? All right, so the big question, as I sort of highlighted earlier, is, is whether or not covenants or servitudes, however you want to call them, uh, under the circumstances, run with the land, right? And this is sort of the, the, the tricky part of uh, the covenants issue. And the key elements here, and I think to really sort of boil this down, the, the, the casebook discussion can get a little confusing about this, is that there's, you need intent, right? So what do we mean by that? Well, what that means is that that when this agreement was, and remember, these things all start as just contracts, they're just a normal agreement between two parties. Uh, when this agreement was created, that there was some intent that it be running with the properties, right? That it not just be a one-off deal, right? That this wasn't just pay me a hundred bucks and you can use, um, you know, and, and I won't, you know, build a shed or you can, you know, use my property in some way. This is this is supposed to be an enduring agreement. Right, so there has to be some intent. Uh, uh, and how can you figure that out? Well, almost always uh, that's going to be found right in the language of the agreement itself. If you want a covenant to run with the land, you say, this shall run with the land when you make it. Right? And that almost all, in almost all cases, that determines the, the intent issue. Okay? Now, and then there's this horizontal and vertical privity. Right? So the discussion here is that horizontal privity, uh, what does that mean? If I say horizontal privity uh, at the time the agreement was made. Between the grantor and the grantee. Might be a grantor and a grantee relationship. Might be a landlord-tenant relationship. Um, might be, as it turns out, because the courts are getting more and more flexible about this. It might even be just some other relationship, right? Some sort of relationship. In fact, the horizontal 
sort of privity relationship has over the years sort of diminished in importance. It still crops up every now and again, but in general it just means that at some point there were two parties who agreed. Now very often they agreed in the context of the land transaction, uh, in which case there's clear uh, privity. could be a landlord-tenant relationship, but oftentimes it could be just a flat-out agreement um, uh, between parties uh, to, to do something, right? Vertical privity, what does that mean? Right, so vertical privity is the idea that, that the parties who are now both the, the beneficiary and the person being burdened by the, the covenant are, have vertical privity, means, meaning that they have purchased or, or are the successors to the estate of the people who um, created the original uh, agreement, right? And, and like the other, uh, like horizontal privity, the vertical privity concept is, is there, and that is almost always required. Um, courts have gotten somewhat more lax on a particular aspect of it. It used to be for a long time that you had to have exactly the same um, uh, estate, meaning if, if the person above uh, that you got your interest from had a fee simple, you also had to have a fee simple in order for the covenant to run. Some courts will do that, some courts won't. Um, but the general idea, and I think for our purposes, the best idea is just that you have to have uh, be a successor in interest to whoever um, uh, made this agreement uh, to begin with, right? So that's uh, the vertical privity. Now, sometimes courts, when they're doing the equitable servitude thing, will sort of crunch horizontal and privity down into this more general concept of notice. And, and the idea here is we're just really talking about the same sort of thing. Right? And we'll find out, as it turns out, that notice can be a pretty broad concept uh, as well. Um, so just saying notice doesn't really tell us much more than, than um, uh, there's some sort of opportunity to find out that this covenant was there. And then the third uh, aspect, and the one we'll talk about just now, is the touch and concern, uh, uh, which means there's some relationship between the covenant and the, the land. Can you give an example of Yeah, well, so one reason, so, uh, so let's say you and I have an agreement to that, I, that we're going to fix a fence, right, and, and uh, you, know, you sell your land to somebody else. Now, my brother-in-law can't come and say you need to fix the fence, right, because he no, he's not a successor in interest to my interest in the land, right? I could, yeah, because I still have my interest, right? It's just... I mean, the idea is unrelated people can't sort of come into this, right? It's sort of confining the number of uh, persons who are going to get the benefit and who bear the burden, right? By the same token, I can't go to some guy in the street and say, fix my fence, right? Why? Well, he doesn't have any interest in the land, so he doesn't have the burden. Um, so it's, that's we're turned, sort of trying to keep people um, uh, inside, inside that box, all right? Any other questions about this? All right, so this is the three basic... Um, uh, requirements, or four if you break out the horizontal and vertical privity. All right, so Naponset. Okay. Uh, let's see, Zizi, who went home. Okay, uh, we'll get her. Brandon. Sure. Um, so in Naponset, there was this um, tract of land that was developed for residential use, um, <coughs> and they had a covenant saying that um, they had the right to charge up to $4 a 
they got a, they had the right to charge a little bit of money um, to help provide the general upkeep and stuff to the homeowners association. Um, and later on, the um, the property gets bought, and the issue is whether or not they have to continue to pay these homeowners fees. Um, and there's two issues: the first being whether or not because the homeowners association is a separate entity in some way. Okay. Um, so whether they still are considered, I guess, would that be vertically? Whether they have privity. We'll talk about that in a minute. That's a good, yeah. Um, so there's that, and the other issue is whether or not um, the covenant actually has interest in the land, because it has to do with paying for sidewalk and stuff that isn't actually moving into their property. Okay, good. All right, so Naponset is a really, really important case for um, homeowners associations, right? Because the basic issue here is, what is the enforceability of a covenant to pay dues for, um, well, what were the dues for, Brandon? Um, they were to, to help provide um, like sidewalks, general walking paths, um, parks, beaches, it was just to keep the area in Exactly, right? For commons areas. These were um, dues to be paid for commons areas, and they were, um, and it's important, obviously, uh, that, that these run. Why is that so important? Um, because if not, then once the neighborhood turns over, the homeowners association would not exist anymore and the property value would fall. Exactly, right? Property, I mean, the whole sort of idea of having these homeowners associations is that people are going to continue to do it, uh, continue to pay into them, and, and we wouldn't want to have a case where after one generation or two of, of the sales that this sort of all fell apart, right? Um, and so this was an important case. The, the, courts, the, the court begins by noting that... that Courts have historically been very strict about affirmative covenants that require the payment of money. So note that what this is is technically an affirmative covenant. What is an affirmative covenant? It's a covenant to do something as opposed to a negative covenant, which is a covenant not to do something. Um, so this is an affirmative covenant. You, you must pay dues, basically. And courts have been um, strict about affirmative covenants, uh, covenants for paying, paying money. Why do you think, Brandon? Um, Courts don't like these things, or haven't. And certainly in, until New Ponza, it was generally thought not going to work. Why would a covenant to pay money be something courts would be reluctant to pass along? Is it like a nepotism issue? So if... Um, there's horizontal privity, there's an onset, two people agree about, uh, you know, having so-and-so construction company build all the new homes and do all the repairs, but that so-and-so construction company happens to be my cousin's construction company. Then if we were bound vertically, then everybody else, you know, so then future tenants would have to link up with my brother's, my cousin's construction company. Okay, maybe, although I don't think that's what's driving it, because that seems, I mean, it seems like, I could imagine that happening, but I'm not sure that would animate sort of changing the law altogether, right? Why, why do you think? Lauren? Well, maybe would it be that it's harder to show that it really touches the concerns of the land? Like, it could be more specific to the person that's requesting the dues as opposed to something that's necessary. Yeah, it doesn't, it has this feel, right, that it, payment, you know, an agreement to pay money has sort of a personal sort of aspect to it, rather than a more general sort of property 
um, enhancement aspect to it. And so the concern, I think, among courts was long that, you know, the fact that you agree to join a homeowners association is great. You can do that if you want. But the fact that you agree to it shouldn't necessarily require all of your successors and interests to also join this homeowners association if they don't want to. It's a personal decision to pay money into the homeowners association. And to the extent you want to do it, that's fine. But we're not necessarily going to allow it um, uh, to transfer to your successors and interests, right? So here, as uh, why does this, the court decides this does indeed run because it touches and concerns the land. So Brandon, why? Um, well, I think they find that the homeowners are allowed to use those public spaces, so in a way they're able to benefit both from the increased property value and from their access to the roads. All right, so good. So one, one point is they get, they get benefits, and the benefits are obviously the use of these common spaces and the use of the well-maintained common spaces, right? So uh, the fact that these are, are available and maintained are important benefits to the land. What else? And the court sort of goes through a long discussion about what what kinds of things are important with respect to touch and concern? So certainly finding some benefits that, that, are, that come out of, of the covenant is, is an important aspect. Craig? Okay, so affects legal rights. Um, Right? So they had an affirmative, they had an easement, an actual easement over these common properties. And so the fact that they were paying to maintain these common properties was, you know, that easement is sort of viewed as an add-on to their property. Sort of part of their uh, property is to have these easements over the common properties. And so the fact that they were paying means that they're really just paying to maintain their own property in that sense, right? So it looks like their, their legal rights, their property rights are actually going to be affected by um, uh, the payment of, of these uh, dues. Anything else? There's at least one more factor the court seems to think is important. What about other people? Do they factor in this at all? Alex? Good, exactly, right? So the court says other people's rights are implicated, right? So third-party rights um, uh, are implicated, right? Because if you don't pay, it doesn't just hurt you to not pay, but it, it you know, diminishes the maintenance of the overall uh, environment, and that hurts other people's relationship to their land as well. So... I mean, there's no, the interesting thing about Naponset is they're very clear that there's no hard and fast rule for touch and concern. It's not like we can just go through and pick out a couple of factors that always yield. And in fact, the next case shows um, that uh, you really can't sort of expect these things to always be, uh, always run with the land and therefore always be enforced. But these are the kind of things the court is talking about, right? Are there benefits, important benefits uh, to you, the landowner, by 
um, doing these covenants? Are your legal rights as a landowner implicated by the aspect of, of uh, in this case, paying the dues, by the aspect of the covenant? Are other people's legal rights um, to their uh, property also implicated by um, your uh, performance under the covenant? Those are the sorts of things the court is asking uh, when it tries to figure out uh, whether or not something is uh, touches and concerns the land. Right? So there's a lot of discussion in the casebook about whether this touch and concern concept is even useful. Like, why? Like, why do we have this? Why not just have, as long as there's good solid notice, you can go ahead and um, just allow covenants to run. <laughs> Okay, but we could have covenants run unless circumstances change. And we could have covenants run unless they're unconscionable or otherwise void uh, because of bad public policy. I mean, we could have sort of a set of more clearly defined rules and just say everything else runs. Why well, have this sort of standard where the courts are, you know, balancing all these factors? Why don't I just say they always run unless there's some defect in them? Well, I mean, when you're But if you paid for those, if you knew, assuming notice, wouldn't that be okay? I mean, if you knew that you had to pay, um, uh, you know, money for the, the property developer's child to go to Penn Law School, right? Clearly does not touch and concern the land, but you agree, right? You did. It might. I mean, how would that work? Well, then you're just... See, this is, this is, I mean, it's good. What's the, I mean, I can see the wheels turning. What are the, what's the argument? Um, well, in that situation, you're essentially free to kind of attack on any sort of um, restriction okay. or obligation onto it. And so it doesn't really confine, it doesn't really conform to any menu of. Good. And why do we why are we concerned as a matter? Or why would courts be concerned about allowing people to go off menu, so to speak? Oh, for all those reasons we discussed earlier. Like what other people know. Exactly. Notice, transaction cost reason, information cost reason. So it might be that courts are reluctant. They use the touch and concern concept to try and confine people into some, maybe not an exact menu, but at least into some reasonable set of types of covenants um, that are going to run with the land uh, and therefore they're sort of upholding some information cost theory um, uh, approach something like the numerous clauses so that's a good a good possibility any other things that we're trying to do with touch and concern I mean, I I think courts like to be able to, to review these things, right? They, they um, this is, you know, they, having a very open-ended standard like this is, from a judicial perspective, pretty useful because it allows you to decide on a, almost a case-by-case -case basis whether or not um, covenants will run or not, whether they're valid against successive purchasers or not, and it allows courts to have a lot more um, ability to review and, and potentially... Um, uh, void or, or not 
um, uh, these covenants than they would if there were just flat rules that said, you know, all covenants run except in particular circumstances, right? So I think, you know, it's a combination of these things. Concerns about information cost problems, notice problems perhaps, uh, and then that, that this is a, you know, a flexible standard that allows judges to reach what they view as, as good results in, in particular circumstances. And the court in the ponds, it basically says as much, says there's really no formula to this. Um, we're not going to, um, uh, you know, define exactly what we're talking about here. We're just going to tell you the sort of general feeling we get from this. And in this case, the court says, you know, there's plenty of benefits going around. It affects your legal rights. There are third parties involved here that rely on these dues, and therefore it's going to touch and concern the land, and it's enforceable against successive uh, purchasers uh, of the land. So someone give me a, a, a other than paying for the develop, property developer's um, uh, child to go to law school, what would be a covenant that would not run? other than the sort of ridiculous one. Is there one that seems, I don't know, maybe you'll see that. Yeah. We'll just leave that. Anyone? Any ideas? Jaren. Yeah, so what, so what kind of things, that, so you buy a piece of property and it has in, included in the deed some, say, some things saying you're going to pay for X. Uh, my friends usually always have the fireworks show on 4th of July. Good, yeah. <laughs> Doesn't seem like it, right? Good. Yeah. All right. So that would be one. Uh, courts have struck down uh, uh, covenants to pay dues on golf courses that aren't actually sort of the commons areas, but are you know sometimes you'll have community associations where as part of joining the uh, part of being a property owner you have to pay dues for the golf course. Those have been in many states uh, not uh, held not to run with the land uh, because they don't. Uh, sort of touch and concern the land to quite the same degree uh, here, Brian? Well, I don't agree with that one. Okay. Uh, the areas in which you have golf courses, I mean, it, it does affect the land in terms of the property value, in terms of uh, other people who are coming into the area. I, yeah, so why do you think courts are a lot less likely to find that to, to run with the land? I mean, I, I guess because you have to make a, an argument, it's not as um, tangible. Sort of doesn't have this direct connection feel, right? I mean, it's you know here these are going to, to maintain the flowers in the in the median of the boulevard, right? Which seems like it's there. It's you drive on it, you have an easement on it. The, the golf course is you know it's off on the side of the property. It's got this you know it's maybe part of the general development, but not quite as um, uh, central to your property rights. So I think that's you know what again there is no particular set of rules. It's just sort of this standard of. Uh, where the court sort of tries to feel like whether it's really part of your property or not. Uh, the land that I'm back home has a restricted covenant on it that it's not to be used for dumping or storage of junk. And uh, okay, so let me ask: Have you ever run afoul of that particular? <laughs> <laughs> not on that particular piece of property. Okay. Uh, but I'm just curious, like, because that was a subdivided ranch, it was divided into little sections. Yeah. And so in order, if I mean, obviously that touches the land and all that, so. It so do you think? So how many people think that that runs? The covenant not to store junk on your land. Okay, probably runs. Yeah. 
Go. If I were to buy all the property, or if somebody were to buy all the property that was restricted with that covenant, then, or if, if all the neighbors were to agree, could you just eliminate that legally? Is that how that works? You can typically do that, yeah. If you can get everyone to agree, you can usually buy your way out of, of covenants. But again, there's a, you know, depending on how big the property is, it might be a lot of people to get together. But but yeah, in general, you could you could buy out or at least get people to agree not to enforce the covenant as against you, and which might not work when it when they transferred. But okay, all right. So the other issue, as Brandon sort of highlighted a minute ago, was it was the enforcement, who the person enforcing it was. Right. This the court here allows the homeowners association to enforce this covenant. Right. Why is that a little bit odd, Brandon? Well, the homeowners covenant exactly exactly right so the homeowner association is just this association right it's not a um, it's not a landowner right it's not the developer uh, who originally uh, started this uh, chain of process so Brandon how does the court get around that um, they don't really they just kind of say it was a convenient instrument yeah, they just sort of say, ah, it's effectively the successor to the developer for the purposes we're talking about here, right? The court sort of side sidesteps that. That turns out to be as important a holding as the touch and concern holding uh, to the future development of, um, of uh, homeowners associations because it allows now um, homeowners associations themselves to... Uh, be the, the, the persons who can enforce the covenants against the, the, the parties, against the people who own the land, right? So that turns out to be a pretty important uh, aspect um, uh, to, it's not so much a property issue, it's almost like a corporate law, piercing the corporate veil type uh, issue, um, but it is an interesting aspect of this case. Um, okay, so I have a question for, so since the Homeowners Association now gets to be the person that what about like um, some properties? If you buy them, they say like you can't install a basketball court or a light fixture or things mm -hmm. like that. Is that the same? Is that usually? Question, yeah. That's also a covenant. Be a covenant. That's a covenant yeah. That you accept, and then who enforces it? Well, very often they would specifically state in a in a deed. Who would be the, the enforcer, right? It would say that there's a homeowner association. But in a PONS, it stands for the principle that even if they don't expressly state it, if there's a convenient instrument, a convenient body who's sort of in charge of maintaining the standards of the neighborhood, that they're going to have the right to enforce the covenants against you, right? The other thing is that a neighboring property owner um, would also have the right uh, to do that because they have the benefit of your, your agreement not to build you know, a basketball court or whatever. Okay. All right, so Eagle Enterprises. Um, Alex. Because <laughs> you're excited. Okay. Um, 
So this argument is between the successor of that original developer and the successor to the one of the people who bought them. Good. So again, the issue is, does this requirement to purchase water run with the land or does it not run with the land? Right? And the court here says no. Why? Sure, but that's just the punchline. Why not? Why does it not touch and concern? The court says the reason it doesn't run with the land is it does not touch and concern the land, unlike Naponset. Um, so they built their own well. Okay, so one one reason is um, the property owners here built their own well. What if the Naponset property owner said, "I have my own lawnmower"? That I don't think would get them out of it, right? So. Got to be something more than that. What is it? Uh, I think there's a couple things. One is that the water was only supplied half the year, so it wasn't full updated access, and that diminished the touch and concern. Yeah, so the court says that it's only for seasonal water supply. So why does that matter? Um, I mean, I think you're right. That's a critical part here. It's just seasonal water supply is all that the covenant says anything about. I think it's a question of, like, the extent of the touch and concern, and it diminishes that extent. Yeah, I mean, look, how much benefit, right? It's just sort of looking at what we wrote down for Naponset. The benefits are significantly less because if you want to live full-time on the land, does your seasonal water supply help you? No, at least not six months of the year it doesn't, right? So the benefits look um, less important. You know, your legal rights, not nearly as much, because yes, you have the right to get water, right? But only for six months of the year. It's a limited right, only for certain times of the year. Um, are there third parties involved? Yeah, not really. I mean, whether or not you take water doesn't seem to affect whether your neighbors are going to take water. Uh, and affect their property in any way. So it just feels different, right? I mean, a lot of this, I think the courts just sort of feel their way into whether these seem like agreements that, you know, on the one hand are important and fundamental, not necessarily fundamental, but, but important and sort of distinctly related to the property itself versus ones that feel more like just an agreement people reached maybe sometime in the past that, that really wasn't intended to be a forever type of thing, right? And here the court seems to think that this falls on the other side, right? So how should we think about touch and concern? Well, I think, you know, the best way to think about it is that courts are sort of feeling their way through it. It's a standard. It's not a rule. Um, the courts in both Eagle Enterprises and the Ponset are quite clear at saying uh, there are no formulas. There's no magic to this. We are just trying to figure out what makes the most sense. I think these things we wrote on the board here, um, you know, are there benefits to the, to the person who, who is burdened by the covenant? Uh, does it affect that person's legal rights in some way? Are there third-party rights implicated? I think those are important factors that the courts bring into play, um, but I think that they're not dispositive, and that not having one of those might not uh, change it. And, but I think that, um, you know, this would, this would be, this is just sort of a case-by-case -case analysis. 
How would the restatement deal with this case? So there's a restatement that suggests an entirely different way of looking at the running of covenants. Justine. They would look at if they violate public policy? I don't know. What do you think? I mean, so what's the general approach of the restatement? Right. So basically, the restatement says as long as a covenant is written, it's going to run unless it violates one of these criteria. So why why do you think this one might not run? Um, I think because I mean, it's a reasonable restraint on trade or competition might be a stretch, but like, I mean, water selling. I don't know if it's exclusive or. I mean, it's kind of weird. You just required them to pay $35 a year and take the water. Yeah. Yeah? Um, I don't know. I mean, it seems kind of arbitrary. I mean, in the 70s, anyway. I don't know when the covenant was started. Like, maybe there was an inability to get water, but in the 70s, yeah. water was, I think, a, a utility that everyone got into their homes, right? So, I think it could be arbitrary. And that, like, it's kind of arbitrary to say, okay, someone's going to bring you water and you're going to it is, but it's not necessarily any less arbitrary than saying, I'm going to pay you $35 a year and you're going to mow the median of the boulevard, right? I mean, they're both sort of there. I think this one, under the restatement, would probably run, right? I think that the restatement stands for the basic idea that unless there's something pretty seriously wrong, um, uh, then we're going to let almost everything run. And, uh, and we're not going to have the court sort of trying to get in there and figure out whether... There's a, a deep-seated touch and concern. We're going to set aside touch and concern, and we're just going to say, is it illegal, unconscionable, against public policy? If it's not, and it's in writing, it runs. Yeah. So wait, how would this have happened, like, when they actually took the covenant? Would they, would it, like, the company that's offering it, and why would they, like, impose Yeah, I mean, I, I assume that, you know, the original um, dividers, the developers, did this, put this in all the deeds, um, because they were digging one well, or they had one well already, one water supply, and they wanted to, maybe it was making uh, the lots more attractive by saying you are guaranteed water at this rate, uh, you know, for, and it's always in your deed. Um, maybe they were making sure that then the payment in the $35 could ensure that this well could be maintained forever for all the benefits. I mean, one of the interesting things about this case is it appears that this was developed with um, seasonal houses in mind, which is the reason it said, you know, you get it during the summer and not during the winter. And then this is later because of the expansion of, of uh, New York has become a um, sort of a more full-time community, which makes the covenant sort of seem silly. But I think at the time, it probably made a lot of sense to make sure you could get a supply of water um, from at, the, at a given rate. I was wondering, um, on this and on the other one, where, where they put a $6 amount in the covenant, and like it was $4 a year for the homeowners association or whatever, and then over time, of course, that $4 today would mean nothing. So how do they go about adjusting for inflation and things of that nature? Well, so what would you do as, as the drafter of these covenants? Well, if in the case of the homeowners association, I would assume that they, what I would do is just say you have to be a member of the homeowners association, and then the homeowners association, of course, is Yeah, that's the more common thing. And it usually also says, and pay such dues as the homeowners association agrees to be paid, right? But in this case, it's not a homeowners association. It's not smart to put 
actual dollar amounts into the, into the covenants, right? Because of exactly the suggestion that you raised, which is this happens. Another aspect that is different between Neponset and Eagle Enterprises, the courts did talk about, is Neponset actually had a sunset clause, right? The covenant itself was, was going to terminate, right, in, I guess, 1940. Um, so, uh, whereas in Eagle Enterprises, there was no termination clause. And the court did seem concerned um, in the Eagle Enterprises case that this would sort of, you know, forever, this guy would be required to take water. Right? And whereas in the Ponza, you could say, all right, this homeowner's association, the covenant to join the homeowner's association is going to end at some point. It seems like it's less of an onerous restriction on the, on the requirement uh, on the land itself. Okay? All right. Questions? All right. So what do you do if you don't uh, get a deed or the developer sells a deed that doesn't necessarily contain, which doesn't contain the covenant, and yet you want to have um, the ability to enforce those covenants, right? Um, so this is uh, the, uh, the they pour, they purchase a lot. Uh, it doesn't appear to have any. Um, uh, well, there's nothing in the deed that says anything about restricted uses. Uh, this is in a, a suburb of Detroit. Uh, they start building a gas station. Uh, on their lot, and, and a neighbor um, sues, right, saying there's a, there's a covenant. By the way, there's a covenant here. You've got to build uh, uh, what they described as nice single-family homes, right, onto this. And uh, the property owner says, what are you talking about? There's nothing in my deed that says anything about restricting my abilities to, to purchase. Um, and, uh, you know, some of these lots, the earth, the Overall developers sold some of the lots with a restrictive deed in it, uh, and uh, some of the lots were sold without a restrictive deed in it, right? So, in fact, um, this uh, deed, not only does it not have the deed in it or the covenant in it now, but at no point in the chain of title can you find this covenant, right? And yet it all came from the same overall developer, uh, and the question is, does it nonetheless uh, apply to the current landowners, right? So, as an aside, how should you do this? If you're developing a big tract of land, you're going to subdivide land up, and you're going to make sure that everybody is um, going to uh, have a common set of covenants, whether it's covenants to um, uh, maintain their, their yards, uh, covenants to only paint their house certain colors, uh, covenants to pay dues. How should you do this? What's the smart way to do this? Nothing and hope for the best? What do you do? I think a lot of that can be handled through zoning. Like if you can get on board with the city and try Yeah, but the zoning, I mean, depends on where you are, but the zoning isn't going to handle things like I don't want, you know, unsightly basketball courts in my, uh, in, the, in everyone's driveway, or I don't want, you know, a bright orange house. With the developer, probably some type of form contract where it's the same across the board. All right, so one is make sure that all the deeds say the same thing. Right? So that's pretty clear. Um, uh, oftentimes now what you do is you, you actually record uh, a, a declaration of a common plan that has a, so over for each, you know, in each lot you put in their recording file with the, the state or the county uh, a, a notice saying we have a common plan that sort of refers to this common plan that's also filed 
so that everybody involved knows that there's a common plan. You have some sort of um, uh, track laid out for this. Um, you usually have a map involved that lays it out, so sort of a master map to tell everybody that they're part of this development, uh, and then you make sure that all the deeds include this, right? The developers here didn't do this, right? The developers did not have a common plan filed uh, with anyone anywhere. They didn't refer to a common map anywhere. Uh, and they did this third thing, which is make sure the deeds actually contain the covenant sporadically. Some of the deeds had it. Some of the deeds didn't. They were pretty sloppy about this, right? So this is the, you know, the, the common plan doctrine, right? You have a bunch of lots all sold by a developer, and these have covenants. Four of them have covenants, and one of them doesn't have the covenant. And the question is, does number four here nonetheless have to apply uh, to, uh, uh, does comply with the overall um, uh, covenants, right? And here, the court finds that yes, indeed, you have to. It says it's implied, but the court doesn't really, it's not really implied. It's really just a covenant. It says that you should have, you were, you were in fact uh, part of the, the plan all along, and therefore you must um, stick with the covenant, right? Um, and so the issue here, the way that this works is this can happen when there's a, when a common owner sells a parcel, um, and uh, when, he, when they sell one, or, or even more like when they sell two of these parcels that are supposed to be as a parcel with a restrictive covenant or a restrictive easement of some sort, that that is then considered to, in effect, be a part of all of the other parts of the parcel, right? So even though there wasn't technically anything in the covenant, the deed given for number the lot number four, it is still considered under this common plan doctrine to be part of the overall um, uh, common plan and therefore uh, subject to it, okay? Um, this is, uh, you must, again, have the common owner. That's important. Uh, and these always run with the land. Okay. And you have to have notice. Well, what if, like, what if they had paid extra for this specific fact that they didn't include this covenant? They wanted the right to do whatever they wanted with their land. Yeah. So that so that you would you would say maybe that some successor in interest to um, uh, the the property owner here had you know paid an extra amount of money in order to be able to to have the option to do whatever they want, right? Well, and I think there, um, courts would probably override the notice and common plan doctrine if you actually had a covenant, right? If you had a written, clear declaration of the intent between the party, the grantor and the grantee at the beginning, the argument there is that then that parcel, you know, parcel number four, would not in fact fall within the overall plan because it was clearly sold under a different set of circumstances than the rest, right? So the idea here is, if it was, seems like it was intended to be sold within the same set of circumstances, then it's going to be given the same set of restrictions as all the other ones. Okay? So again, I think it's just a default rule. Right? Um, so the court was said that McLean, the property owner, actually did have notice of the covenant here. But it's not in his deed. Right? And he says nobody told him, at least not until they, his neighbor sued him for building a gas station. So what kind of notice did he have? Yeah. So what do you think about that? The court basically says there weren't any other gas stations on, on in that area, so you should have known. 
that no gas stations were allowed. Um, well, I think one of the notes in the case brought up, like, what if everyone, sort of, sort of self-regulating group, and they were all uniform, not by a covenant, but just its own preference, um, that could be very problematic. Sure. Yeah, I mean, this number. is... Like, if there were 100 homes, and... You're at 99 and you don't have anything, but then let's say there's like three homes and two of them, I mean, that is very objective on like how much uniformity it probably comes Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it raises a number of important problems, right? Because how, I mean, is it really fair to McLean to not, I mean, it, there was nothing written down. He, nobody told him, and I guess he was supposed to understand you know, given the character of the neighborhood, that he wasn't allowed to build a, uh, a, a, um, a gas station. On the other hand, if everyone else on your block has a nice big mansion and you start building, you know, a gas station, okay, maybe. We should think that maybe there's some something going on here. Okay, so you feel like that the inquiry notice makes sense here to just say, all right, you're held to it. You should have asked around before you invested in it. You, you were effectively part of this, this product. Yeah. Granted. Was he aware when he purchased the lot, what other lots were part of the original development? Not at that time. So at that point, it's hard to understand because how does he know how far this yeah, I mean, one of his arguments was, hey, I'm on a corner. It seems like corners see, are natural for commercial activity. And, uh, you know, well, how was I supposed to know where this thing ended? I mean, yeah, I mean, he says that. But the court says, no, you should have known. You look on the other corners, there's no gas stations there either. So, at some point, yeah, yeah, Eric? Well, my question is, how much does it turn to the fact that there's a gas station, which is sort of an offensive thing to put in the neighborhood? If it was like, we're talking the Upper East Side, which you put a yoga studio in between all these houses, or like a, I don't know, something, you know, they might cater to people that live in that type of neighborhood. Sure. It wouldn't be so offensive. Do you think that might be upheld? Um, well, if his, so the covenant that was held to that he was held to have been a party to here was a covenant to only build sort of what they called exclusive homes, right? So he would still be technically in violation of the covenant, right? So I think that under the reasoning, we'd have to have the same result. Now, whether or not his neighbors would sue him right away for a yoga studio is a different question, right? Or whether he might be able to purchase them off or something like that it might change if he didn't have a. Um, such a clearly inconsistent use, right? They find that it doesn't matter given that there was a common plan. That's the, that's the doctrine. The doctrine here is called notice in a common plan. It allows courts essentially to fill in the gaps. As long as there was writing somewhere, right? And the key here is that they did have this in writing just not in his particular deed, it was in the other deeds that were part of the common plan as well. Yes, this is a very expansive thing, right? So think about it. You're buying a property 
in Detroit now, right? And as part of your title search, you want to figure out if there's any covenants to what you can do with the property. Now what do you do? Well, you look at your chain of title, but what else do you have to do? You have to look at all your neighbor's chain of title, and then their neighbor's chain of title, right? And you can see how allowing this sort of doctrine has caused um, an enormous amount of cost with respect to, to potential information costs. Phil. So. Yeah, so that goes to whether, whether a court will indeed find a common plan, right? And that's why sort of the, the most sure way of getting this enforced, if you're a developer, is to make sure you do prove that you have a common plan by filing an actual common plan, right? Now, if, as the number sort of drops down and starts to look like it's not a common plan, you are just sort of giving out deeds at different times in different places, right? Uh, and so the, the common plan, I don't think there's an actual number, right, that the court would find. Um, but yeah, to, obviously to the extent there's a lower, a smaller and smaller percentage of whatever properties that the common owner doled out, you're going to have a much lower chance of finding a common plan. Thanks. I just have a question. Is Well, sure, they, but that's a case we're going to do, probably not today, but, but after Thanksgiving, right? So there are ways to try and terminate or not enforce covenants on the basis of other reasons. But it, here the question is whether this covenant actually uh, was there, right? All right, so let's talk briefly about conservation easements. Um, this is actually uh, a big uh, area of property out, out near where I live. Probably the, what has been described in the papers is the last um, uh, open space, undeveloped open space in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania. That's um, uh, a really large tract, um, and it's all been recently uh, sold and subject to conservation easements. Right? Conservation easements are basically restrictions on the right of the, the landowner um, to develop the land um, essentially at all or beyond sort of uh, recreational uh, uses only. Um, and uh, this has all been put into conservation easements. Conservation easements are a, a huge and booming business. Um, this is, they've become incredibly popular uh, uh, recently. Um, they are an interesting uh, creature because they are uh, easements that are held not by any property owner, but they're typically either held by a municipality, holds the benefit, or um, the uh, uh, or some uh, you know conservation group, some third party group uh, would uh, hold the uh, property would, would hold it. Um, so in that sense, it's a it's an easement that would not normally be allowed since it offers rights and benefits to third parties, not just parties uh, to the to any original transaction, um, but they're specifically allowed in most states, I think all states now, uh, by statute. Okay? Um, 
right? So they're a creature of statute, sort of a new uh, thing you can do uh, by statute. Uh, obviously, there are public policy reasons in favor of them because we want people to um, uh, allow these covenants because it expands the scope of uh, conserved land. What are the downsides? Good, right? So they're important. One of the main reasons people do this is they can get a huge, often really huge, tax deduction, right? Because if you're giving away, you know, take this lot, for example, um, think about how valuable that would be uh, as, say, garage townhomes, right? Uh, it'd be, you know, horrible, but on the other hand, it's extraordinarily valuable as that um, uh, on that use, and so they can make a case that, you know, they have foregone all of that possible income uh, by doing so and take a tax deduction on some portion of, of that value, right? So that's, um, that's important. Now, what public benefit, you know, is the public benefit of having this open space, um, you know, worth the lost tax revenue? I mean, that's, that's a question that conservation easements uh, certainly raise. Steve? It restricts future generations to the uses that are determined now, which may not be Absolutely, right? I mean, they are, they are a clear restraint on future uses, uh, and, uh, and uh, indeed, the IRS won't, won't generally allow you to deduct um, the monies unless you have these in perpetuity, right? So they're, not, they're generally required in order to get the full tax benefits uh, to be uh, permanent uh, easements as well. I mean, to some degree, a criticism is that these are just, you know, these are giveaways to rich people, right? Rich landed people can get huge tax breaks. Um, uh, and yes, their benefits to society are clear that these are not, this is not going to become an area of garage townhomes. On the other hand, um, you know, it's possible that, it, that society might be better off with this area as garage townhomes uh, with the tax benefit and, and the more housing and things like that. And so that's you know, sort of the public policy surrounding uh, conservation easements. Um, so, uh, let's see, real quick, the, the termination uh, of easements, the Bulletin case. This is in Los Angeles. Uh, the plaintiff's property, uh, well, so the plaintiff is the landowner. He's suing to quiet title. Remember, a quiet title action is an is a action trying to clear your title up, right? So you're suing... Um, to make sure that he's trying to remove a restrictive covenant from his title. Uh, the restrictive covenant is that he can only use this um, uh, for residential use, uh, and he wants to develop it commercially. Uh, and the reason he says that he should be able to title uh, to, uh, to get that removed is that the character uh, of the area has changed and that circumstances have changed so significantly that it's not worth, uh, that his... Uh, there's no benefit uh, to anybody in him keeping his land in, um, in residential use only, right? This is a very busy street, uh, major thoroughfare in Los Angeles, uh, and there's already some Class A office space. This is the area of homes in which uh, the, the case occurs, and what he wants to do is take, I believe he has one of these homes right on the edge here, he wants to convert this into, into office space as well. So his argument is that in uh, what you have to do in order to terminate a negative covenant, again, the covenant not to do something, is to argue for the change circumstances doctrine. 
and say that the enforcement be, would be inequitable or oppressive and that would harass uh, the landowner without any actually benefiting the adjoining owners. Right? The lower courts in this case allowed, it, allowed him to terminate by saying, obviously he's not getting a benefit anymore, and it would be, it's ridiculous to, well, he's losing tons of money by not being able to convert this into commercial space, and that he had had um, some appraisals done that showed that if he converted his lot over to commercial uses, it wouldn't actually hurt anyone else in the, in the subdivision's uh, property values, and it might even actually raise it a little bit because it would only make that area more attractive uh, to companies who wanted access to that workforce. Um, so he says, there you go. Change circumstances. It would hurt me. It wouldn't help anybody else, and therefore allow me to do it. And the California uh, says no, right? It says that the benefit to adjoining landowners is not merely their economic benefit, but whether or not they have sort of peaceful enjoyment of their property as well. Basically, if the adjoining um, uh, landowners are going to be able to complain about a changed pattern of use, um, they're going to be able to stop the circumstance, the change circumstances doctrine, right? And so this is a pretty high bar, right? This is a very narrow doctrine where you can argue that circumstances have changed and then therefore you should be able to terminate uh, the negative covenant that's, that's otherwise enforceable against you. And one question is whether we should be more lenient in this regard, right? Should we be more lenient to do this and allow change circumstances to trigger um, the uh, the, the termination of, of covenants. It's a, it's, it's a policy issue um, that is, um, well, it's a, it's a live policy issue. The courts generally think that we should be reluctant to terminate because there's so many third-party rights potentially involved, right? So one problem is if you let this guy who's on the edge of the tract convert over to Class A office space, then the next person along the block is going to have the same argument, which is that, oh, now, now this lot is office space. I want this lot to be office space, and then I want this lot to be office space, and they could each potentially use the change circumstances doctrine to sort of creep um, uh, the, to you know, ultimately change the circumstances of the entire property, and you eventually have to worry that the, that the uh, ultimate purpose of the covenant, the reason it was put into place in the beginning, uh, has been um, eliminated entirely. Now, so courts are very reluctant in this context. If you can show a real change circumstances, a real transition in the way that people have used the property in that area, then you can often get change circumstances, terminate your covenant, uh, and get that recorded. Um, but it's a pretty rare and hard thing to do. Okay? All right. So unless there are questions, we will stop there and do zoning. Have a very good Thanksgiving. Get some sleep. Relax. Don't eat too much turkey.